You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. But it all comes back to a good story. It does indeed. Now, I know David McLean, this is co-presenter, chatting away there. I know his family story a little bit, but have you ever contemplated writing about it, David? Con- uh, writing about one's own personal story? Well, family well, history. Well, actually, my father has written the family history, ah. and uh, we come from the Isle of Mull. The McLeans come from the Isle of Mull in Scotland, and the estates of Ardgower were given to the bastard son uh, of the clan chief uh, by the laird of the Isles, provided he got rid of the McMasters, which he promptly did, and threw them into the lake. So, oh. very, very <laughs> well, dark and seedy background there. So... Well, it could take a whole book. Now, here I have Leonie Binge. Leonie, welcome. Thank you, Jan. And um, well, <laughs> Leonie has written her family history and it needs something in a family to really spark an interesting book and Leonie's got it. Um, she's also matched that interesting bit of history in her family with some particularly good writing, writing background. Thank you. Now, where did you get your writing background from? Well, actually, I've had no, um, I've done no courses. The only training I had comes from being a teacher and all the literacy work that you do with students and research and writing there. But I've actually done no courses. It doesn't read like that. The prologue and the epilogue of um, Leone's book has the death of a grandmother. Now, to Leone, she'd be always been a loving grandmother. But what about her own mothering skills? She had no mothering skills at all, Jan. Um, It was a great shame because I found it difficult to write about her because I loved her and yet I had to portray the truth. And um, unfortunately, she just lacked parenting skills. This is a quote from page 17. What sort of mother gives her children away and leaves them in an orphanage until they are 16 years of age? And this is the mother, the grandmother you're writing about. Exactly. I knew her. She died when I was 14 and um, she used to rotate around her four children and stay with them when she had no house of her own. And I always find that so ironic that Her children looked after her when she had no home, yet she couldn't do that for them when they were children. From early on, your grandmother, Eliza, suffered from ill health. What was wrong with her? I just think that she was um, a little bit unbalanced. I think she suffered from depression in later years. We, you would probably say that she was a little bit eccentric. And I just think Apart from all of that, she was very self-centred and just wanted things her way and it was her way or the highway. (laughs) (laughs) It was always her younger sister, Ellen, who seemed to come to her rescue. Absolutely, and they were four years apart in age. But to me, Auntie Ellen always seemed like the older sister, the one that was always giving advice and looking after Eliza. Yes, it was kind of a bit of a role reversal there with the sisters. Eliza didn't like the isolation of the country she grew up in. So when she married um, Paddy, 
he brought her into the country town. And they, they, look, they were the first ones in that town that had a car. They were. So, you know, there, there must have been a bit of money behind them. Oh, they did. They, they, they were quite wealthy. The Hunt family owned the largest property in um, Ningan at that time. And Ningan is um, in northern New South Wales, roughly between Dubbo and Burke, about halfway. And, um, yes, so they were quite well off. They were a grazing family. But uh, unfortunately, all the money was spent very quickly once my grandmother remarried. Oh, yes. It was when um, Paddy died. Uh, Eliza moved to Sydney to live with her sister, Alan, and Alan's husband, Ted, above Ted's barbershop. Now, you hint about this second marriage, and I'd like you to read from your own book, please, page 86. And remember, this is back in 1929, the start of the economic depression. Working alongside Fred Masters, a young man brimming with self-confidence, some said overconfidence, and a certain charm as well. His ginger hair had a glossy sheen to it in the sunlight, just as the man himself had. He was a snappy dresser, whose jaunty walk and brash manner were evidence that he expected the world to take notice of him. He gave the appearance that all was going well in his world, as he believed that luck was always with him. Fred was what some called a go-getter, determined to rise up in the world by whatever means fate put before him. The pathway suddenly became much more distinct the moment Ted's sister-in-law walked into the barber shop. At 26 years of age, he was not dismayed by the fact that Eliza Peasley was 10 years his senior. She had a quick brain that was more than a match for his own and at 36 could still be described as a bit of a look-up. Best of all, she was a widow with money to boot. The only downside to pursuing an acquaintance with the lovely Mrs Eliza Peasley was the fact that she had children, and small ones at that. (gasps) Yes, these Mm. small children. Where were the children at this stage? Because they weren't in Sydney. Oh, the younger one was, little Millie. Little Millie was. No, the other three um, were at a private boarding college in Ningen. They used to board there and just come home to Sydney for the school holidays. And it was when these three were brought in, the oldest one, Nellie, was actually told something by the nurse. And this is where we get the title of this book, Nellie's Vow. What was she asked? What was she promised? Once Auntie Nellie's father died, um, I think the nuns knew the family quite well, especially my grandmother's penchant for um, ill health. Uh, So they asked Nellie, who was only 11 at the time, to promise that she would always take care of her sisters. That was a hard promise, wasn't it? For an 11-year-old girl, that's a big ask. But she did promise, and it was a promise that she took very seriously, and she intended to keep that promise no matter what. And it was also at this school that uh, the the girls were told that they couldn't be there anymore because there was no more money coming in, and they Mm. couldn't find the mother. That's correct. And what a shock for them too, because they'd never had to worry about money before. So all of a sudden they were told they had to leave. So were they encouraged to stay home in Sydney by their new stepfather, Fred? Oh, absolutely not. He wanted them out of the way as much as possible so he would confine them to their bedrooms. He he would berate them. He was very strict with them, not loving at all. And um, eventually he sent the elder two children off to family members in England and the younger two... This is where we come to the tragedy. 
he took them to the orphanage in Narellan and just left them there on the doorstep. Another quote from your book. He was like the unblemished skin of a rotting apple. You couldn't tell until you bit into it that it was bad. That Fred Masters, oh, horrible. Uh, The influence that he had on the family was just so disruptive, wasn't it? Well, it changed the course of our family's history, really. But it was very hushed up in the family. I didn't realise the role that he played until I started writing the book because it was a taboo subject. We never mentioned, no one was allowed to mention name Fred. Well, you talk about Nally on her 90th birthday her, quoting, we do not talk about that man. Exactly <laughs> yes, and that was that. The uh, two girls, the two younger girls were in the orphanage for a long time, you know, for Millie, for when, when she was four. four. So little, isn't until, it? For she was in there for 12 years yes. and over that time her mother only visited twice Yes. And and that, you know, <laughs> I, just... I can't understand it. I just, I can't understand that a mother would leave her children there and then not visit them. Yeah. It's unbelievable that you would do that in the first place, although times were very dif- different. And I, actually, as a matter of fact, half a million children were put into care in the, um, in those days. And um, so it was a different society. But um, I just don't understand why you wouldn't go and visit them. Oh, well, the book, of course, you've got the stories from your mother and your aunties about yes. life in the orphanage. And it really, there were hardships. There was the uh, physical hardship of constantly being hungry and cold and yes. those uh, daily doses of cod liver oil. How gross. <laughs> <laughs> the only excursion they ever had out of the orphanage was on an incredibly hot day to go down to the river. That was it. The one and only excursion. In 12 years. Yeah. Lessons that they learnt, lessons about the nuns and, um, um, you know, who carried out their godly duties but didn't really do it with love. No, it was they were very harsh, very strict. There was no love. Um, my mother and aunt are very grateful to the nuns for giving them a home because they wonder where they would have ended up had, had that not been the case. But it was a loveless environment and, you know, my mother was locked up in a cupboard just for giving her sister a piggyback out in the garden yeah. and they forgot about her and she was there for hours. Oh, some of the, <laughs> some of the horrible things. And where would you run away to, to if you could? And I think one of the funniest things, and if something was worth stealing from the kitchen, would it be a jar of anchovy paste? <laughs> oh. Isn't that hilarious? But it was the best thing my Auntie Millie had ever had <laughs> in her life. Well, Leonie Vinge, you really gave depth and texture to the memo- memory, you, the memoir of or your family. Do the other family members see it the way that you've written it? Oh, yes, I think they're all really surprised and um, a bit overwhelmed to hear the whole story because many of the extended family, my cousins, didn't really know the whole truth because, as I said, it was all hushed up. For some reason, I think my auntie Nelly was a little bit ashamed of the the family history. But once it was revealed, they were all very grateful and, and all loved the book, of course. The book, now, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but it is a fantastic looking book it has the sepia front covers and the photographs and um it 
just is beautiful, a very, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful addition. Book. Yes, I'm really thrilled with it, and um, I just love the way that it's got the gold embossing for the title, and it's just really in keeping with the theme of the book too, the whole style of it. It's worthwhile looking at the Arbon A R B O N Publishing Company just to have a look at the quality of the books they do. So. Um, I was invited to read and enjoy your family history, which I thoroughly did. But I just want to ask, what did Monica McInerney, what was her role in the journey of your book? Oh, well, Monica, um, I went to one of her book launches and um, she's so lovely. She walked around the entire room and introduced herself to everybody. And so when she came up to my table, my friend, from a teacher, colleague, started spooking my book to Monica and I was horrified. <laughs> I just felt like crawling under the table and I thought, what would she be interested in? My family memoir. But she was and she asked me a little bit about it and then she said, I want to read your book. It sounds wonderful. So to cut a long story short, she wanted me to post it to her, which I did and it went all the way to Dublin, which mm-hmm. is where she lives. And she loved it so much that she sent a copy to her mother and her mother also loved it and emailed me. And then um, Monica asked if she could give my details to her agent here in Melbourne, which was wonderful. (laughs) So that's how it became published. Before that, I had only self-published it, mostly just for my family, friends and acquaintances. So it went to formal publication once Monica took a liking to it. So I'm so grateful to her. (laughs) Well, look... Well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed the read too. Leonie Binge, her book Nellie's Vow by Arben Publishing. Really, really good read. Thank you for sharing your family with other readers. Thank you so much, Jan. Jan, I have a rather out-of-breath author uh, uh, here who's arrived and she's had no pre-preparation. We sort of word up our authors before they come into the studio and sort of give them a hint of what we're going to ask. But Jane Harrison, my author today, who's written a book called Becoming Kiralee Lewis, has had no pre-preparation. So all of these questions are going to come as a surprise. So Jane, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much. Have you Sorry had a, for the, the sprinting down the road. You did well to get here, but it's plenty of time. Now, before looking at Kiralee, who's the main character mm-hmm. of this novel, I want to look at some of the issues you raise because sure. what we have is a book that's looking at attitudes in Australia towards our Indigenous community mm-hmm. and crossing that racial divide. And one of the biggest issues you've got here is assumptions being made on both sides. So, for example, to be Aboriginal is to be political. You're born into it, can't fight it. Is that true? Well, I think to some extent it is true. Um, I have Aboriginal heritage myself, and I'm more interested perhaps in the small p political. I'm interested in the personal relationships between people rather than some of the bigger issues. But I think because there's so few... Uh, Aboriginal characters perhaps on our TV screens, um, although that's changing now too, but in books, uh, in popular culture, that to be Aboriginal, you're an archetype really. And each character or person or TV personality or whatever has to carry the whole baggage of Aboriginal history. So whether they like it or not, they've got... Um, thrust into it, I think. They're thrust into it, which um, then makes that question of whether 
true equality or acknowledgement mm. is actually possible? Oh, that's a very big question. <laughs> oh, we, we ask these big questions <laughs> the big on questions. published or not. That's what we're well, famous for. Well, you know, I think one of the other things is that Aboriginal people are not a homogenous group who all think, feel and react the same way. The same as every other culture is not a homogenous mm. group. And so I think we've got to avoid making those kind of... Because that's... that's there's I not mean, a pan and pan-Aboriginal character. Yeah, because part of the story is, I mean, Kiralee, the main character, whom we're going to get on to... Yeah. Uh, thinks about when she learnt about Aboriginal culture as a child in school. And this is what I got, which paints the Aboriginal culture, or painted it then, yes. as one homogenous group, yes. uh, etc. Do you think that's changed at all in terms of our perspective and understanding? I don't think it's changed enough. I uh, teach Indigenous studies at a university, and one of the first questions I asked the young people this year was, what did they learn at school? Because my educational background is similar to Kiralee's and that she didn't learn very much. Aboriginal people were the sort of heathens who st stood on one leg with a spear, kind of those kind of uh, images of the noble savage kind of things. And uh, the young people that I spoke to this year said they didn't learn very much about Aboriginal history to this day. Because there are, are a lot of nuances and some of those come out in the book in terms of the uh, family relationships, the networks and all of these sorts of things that, that come to the fore. So it is a, a nuanced culture. Well, it is, like, like every other culture and every other family, in fact. Uh, I think one of the things I'm really interested in doing as, as a writer is uh, turning stereotypes upside down. So I hoped with Kiralee that by starting off with a character who's young... Aboriginal, but very conservative, and in fact quite naive about her own Aboriginality. Well, basically, yes, you do, do challenge these assumptions, and as you say, you turn them on their head. Because, well, let's let's get into Kiralee. <laughs> she is um, part Kuri, part Euro of European descent, mixed uh, mixed relationship. I don't want to give too much away about the relationship mm -hmm. because I think that's where you play on the reader's <laughs> assumption. So the reader's going to have to read the book for themselves to, to understand this. But Kiralee's making assumptions um, and is um, facing assumptions all the time. So she's off to university and one of the first things she faces are the forms where you've got to put in whether you're of Aboriginal descent or Torres Strait mm -hmm. Island descent. And Kiralee wants to know why she can't just be called Australian. Well, absolutely. I think we're still the only cultural group in Australia that's asked our cultural background. We're still the only cultural group in Australia that has to um, prove our Aboriginality. No one else has to prove their 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 mm. identity. I mean, why, so, is that, why is that question asked? So I want to... Though. On forms? On forms. Well, I think basically it comes down to my assumption is that it comes down to governments wanting to say they're spending this amount of money to solve the Aboriginal problem. And again, I want to move away from um, the association of the word problem or issue with Aboriginal because I'm sick of the deficit model of Aboriginal people. Because Kiralee actually finds housing at u the university, housing, very easily. <laughs> but there is a reason for it. And she's not aware of She's not aware of that. And I think... By having a character who is a little bit naive about her Aboriginality, she can ask those non-politically correct questions and we can go on, I hate to use the word journey, but we can explore some of those issues through her lens while if she'd been a non-Aboriginal 
character, it might have been seen as racist. Mm. So again, it was about me sort of unpacking some of that those issues, but having the Aboriginal protagonist doing it. The other interesting thing is there are a lot of coincidences. Now, there's one character, Erin, who actually discovers uh, her mother um, through a very unfortunate... Um, sister. Sister. Elder sorry. sister. Elder sister. My apologies. <laughs> no, sister. okay, yes. Um, who was actually shot by the police. Mm. But it's only after mm. the event that she discovers it. Mm. And her sister's been living virtually in the same neighbourhood. Yeah. And she didn't know this. This is... This actually... Uh, this, this sort of coincidence occurs quite regularly in some ways yeah. in the book. How common is that? Well, Aboriginal people are still only 2% of the population. You know, we're 2%. So I did a lot of work in as a playwright mm. in uh, researching stolen generations. I'm not stolen gens myself, so I can't speak from that perspective. But I did a lot of work, years of work, really. And I was, it was, I found it often really poignant and heartbreaking when uh, people in real life situations would go to meet a family member and those kind of coincidences would happen that or you know the tragedy is that they'd be so close to meeting that family member and that family member had died so um, you know we're a small small community so you know but there is a network <laughs> there that is, that is yeah working absolutely constantly. so they they are in touch with each other in many ways without knowing mm. uh, necessarily each other's true, full backgrounds yeah. because they've been dispossessed or stolen or... Mm. Moved on to missions, moved around the country, that kind of yeah. thing, yeah. And then you've got um, mixed marriages and all sorts mm. of things that have created other families. And this is one of the things Kiralee has to juxtapose. She's been raised by the Lewises. And what sort of family are they? Well, they're a white family, a very loving family. And again, that was one of the stereotypes I wanted to flip on its head. Um, Having worked a lot around the Stolen Gens stories, uh, for her as an Aboriginal young person to have a great experience in a white family that's a story that's not often told so I wanted to bring that perspective in as well um, and they're they're happy for her to investigate her biological family but she's not ready mm. until she goes to university starts to become a little bit more politically aware and some of those sort of edges are knocked off her yeah, quite, uh, quite brutally. Lit- and quite literally. Quite literally, yes. There's violence, there's racism, uh, mm. and all of those sorts of things. One of the characters I love is a very minor character. It's Margaret. I love Margaret Margaret's too. a lesbian comedian, and she basically walks that edge uh, of what is racist and isn't. Yeah. Now, I'm going to read some of, some of her patter from a routine, so we might offend a few people here, so be warned. Then it was Margaret's turn. I was right to worry. She soon spotted me and Kirk. She waved and we sheepishly waved back. It was the first time I'd seen her out of her cinema uniform. I'm just waving at my little co-worker there. Smile, Kira, else they won't see you in the dark. I was shrinking inside, but Charlie was pissing himself laughing. She spotted him and made a beeline over to us. And she's with her darky friends. So, who are you, handsome? Charlie. Charlie. Charles. Named after Bonnie Prince Charlie, no doubt. But much better looking on account of not being inbred. Yes, you are tall, dark and handsome. Where have you been all my life? Around. Where have you been? Charlie seemed to be enjoying himself. 
Around, tell me, handsome, she manoeuvred her tall, ample frame into his lap, squirming around suggestively. The audience tittered, unsure whether they should be appalled or delighted. What do you call an Aborigine in a snowstorm? I nearly died of shame, Charlie replied as quick as a flash. A lamington. Boom, boom, she high-fived him. All right, then, beginner's luck. What about why are aspirins white? Ah, because they work. I threw my hands over my face in humiliation. Hey, Charlie, you and I should be a duo. Black and white on. No, thanks. I won't be around. Why is that handsome? Skipping the country? Got to go check on your Swiss bank account? I'm dying. Unless you can incorporate that into your routine. Dying? What of? Black plague? Black fever? You're playing on the (laughs) old racist jokes, and yet... What's the line? What's the line between what we can and can't yeah. say? Well, it is set in 85. Yes. <laughs> and I grew up with a lot of those jokes. Mm. And I think, you know, it is a different era and we are appalled at some but of those Charlie jokes. Charlie is laughing and well, enjoying and participating or not? Well... You know, I think, again, one of our survival mechanisms as Aboriginal people is our sense of humour. And we laugh a lot at ourselves when you get a whole bunch of Aboriginal people together. And I've just raced from some training around trauma. And now, (laughs) if that was a heavy subject, but there's still laughter in the room. Um, So I think, um, you know, I wanted to paint... Charlie, perhaps, even though he's an activist and he's a tough man and he's had a tough life, that he does have a sense of humour and he's, um, you know, he's not hating on Hmm. white fellas, even though he's... Well, there were things that had to be changed, especially in 85. We have come a long way since 85. We've come a long way since I was a child telling (laughs) racist jokes uh, to 85, to... The apology, the sorry. Mm. Um, how much further have we got to go? A long way. A long way. <laughs> I still think we've got a long way. But it's also about, I think, recognising that some of these stories are our shared history. Mm. It's not just history that have happened to our Aboriginal people over there and non-Aboriginal and people the have their own history. Let's yeah. share that history and just, yeah, be more aware of it and integrate it into our... And some of the assumptions are being made by the Indigenous community as well, is what you point out. Well, again, I'm not, you know, we're all flawed as human beings and we're all complex and we have our prejudices both ways. Mm. Um, So, again, I just wanted to sort of mix up those sort of and break down some of those stereotypes. So that we can cross the divide. Because Charlie at one stage uh, sort of uh, breaks a relationship with a white woman um, because uh, in many ways he feels he's would dishonouring the, the cause be the right way of putting it, or probably he... I think he has he feels he has a responsibility as an Aboriginal man to continue an Aboriginal you know line. Um, so he feels dis- he feels like he would be disloyal to his Aboriginality to sort of have a relationship with a mm. non-Aboriginal person. And I know people like that, and I've known people like that in the past. Yeah. I can understand it. Also, it was set in 85, and I think we've all moved on from those kind of um, ideas. The book is becoming Kiralee Lewis. There are, um, well, there's more than one protagonist because the story's <laughs> told from an... Uh, at least two perspectives, yes. and there are a range of characters, uh, Aboriginal as well as from a European descent and those that cross the divide, and I think even the reader's assumptions at one stage are challenged as well. So, Jane Harrison, thank you very much for coming in today. 
Becoming Kiralee Lewis, and it's from Magabala Books. Magabala Books in Broome. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I was speaking with Leonie Binge about her books, Nellie's Vow. Oh, it was a big day of reading. Big show. Glad to have you back, Jan. (laughs) We'll do it again next week.